turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. So far we have made our way through Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 2. If you were not here, if you are behind, you're not sure what happened the last couple of weeks, I want to encourage you to go and listen to that, those two messages, get caught up um, to where we are this morning in Jonah chapter 3. We have seen thus far, we've learned, that Jonah was one of the sons of the prophets. He was being deployed to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, which was an imminent and looming threat upon Israel. Jonah decided instead of going to Nineveh to go the opposite way towards Spain in his day, Tarshish, likely because he knew if he went to Nineveh, if he went to Assyria to preach to them the message that God had sent him to preach, that they might repent, they might be spared, and they might go ahead and whip Israel. And therefore, he would always be known as a traitor prophet. So Jonah runs. He runs the opposite direction, but God isn't frustrated by Jonah's running. He's not frustrated by your running either. He, he knows where you are, and he knows how to get you. If he wants you, he can find you. So he's not frustrated by your running. He's not frustrated by Jonah's running. He sends a powerful storm that causes the sailors to interrogate Jonah in a panic and in desperation throw him into the sea in order to save the ship and save their lives. Jonah sinks hopeless, drowning, until God sent a whale to save the day. From the belly of the whale, Jonah prays, likely quoting songs from the Old Testament hymnal, quoting songs from the book of Psalms, and he realizes through this prayer and through this series of events that he has sinned against God. He realizes that God is disciplining him. He realizes that God is chastising him, and he repents. He renews his vows to the Lord, and he declares with new conviction that salvation is from the Lord. And then God commanded the fish, who obeyed better than Jonah and who obeyed most of, better than most of us, and the fish vomited Jonah out upon dry land. And we come to Jonah chapter 3. What happens in Jonah chapter 3? Verse number 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You didn't get out of anything, buddy. You just went the long way around. And now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time. Even after all of his rebellious running... The word of the Lord comes to him a second time. And I don't know about you, but we ought to be thankful that God gives second chances, right? And not just second chances, but usually third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances in His grace and in His mercy. Thankfully, when we run from God, when we rebel against God, when we disobey God, even if we wind up thrown overboard and in the belly of the fish, God gives second chances. Verse 2, what does he say? Same thing he told him the first time. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Go to Nineveh, this capital city of the Assyrians. These Assyrians who were known throughout the whole world for their violent treatment of their neighbors. You go, neighbor Jonah, and give them a message. And, and the interesting thing here is he, he doesn't know, it doesn't seem at this point, what he's supposed to say. Because God says, 
go and proclaim to them the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Jonah's not sure what he's going to say until he gets there. He not only isn't sure what he's going to say until he gets there, he's not sure how they're going to respond. Maybe Jonah marches into Nineveh, the Israelite, the Jewish man, and he gets immediately killed. Maybe he gets drug out of town and thrown outside of the borders. Maybe they let him preach his sermon from his stump on the sidewalk. And maybe they listen. And maybe they respond. And then if they respond, what happens? We're not sure what would happen. But I think Jonah had a clue what was going to happen. If he preached and they heard and they responded. I think Jonah had an inclination of what was going to happen. And that's why Jonah didn't want to go. Because if you fast forward to chapter 4, which we're going to look at next week in verse number 2. Jonah's in a tizzy. He's complaining at God. And he says, please Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I knew if I came and I preached, and they heard and they responded, you wouldn't wipe them off the face of the earth. And God, I really wish they were all dead and in hell. That's just the truth. Amidst all of the dangers and unknowns and hesitations, Jonah goes. Not sure what he's going to say, not 100% sure how they're going to respond. In verse 3, he rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. In the literal Hebrew, it says this, Now Nineveh was a large city to God. Or Nineveh was a large city for God. I think there's a little hint there that this city, even though it's a pagan city, is a city that belongs to the one true God of the universe. The city is God's. The Taliban may think that Kabul's theirs, but it's God's. The Democrats and the Republicans may think Washington, D.C. is theirs, but it's God's. New York City, God's. Dubai, UAE, gods. Cairo, Egypt, gods. Baghdad, Iraq, gods. It's all gods. Nineveh of Assyria, it's God's city. Though it's a pagan city, it belongs to God. It is His to do with as He sees fit. Cities, whether they're wicked or whether they're righteous, belong to God. They're God's property. They are His. We fast forward to the book of Acts. And in Acts, the apostle Paul is being sent into a city, and he's afraid to go into the city. And listen to what God tells him in Acts 18, 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Wait just a minute. Paul hadn't made it there yet. Paul hasn't preached the gospel there yet. There's no First Baptist Church there. How does God have people there? God's already got himself a people in this city. And he says, Paul, don't be afraid. Go on into the city. I got some people there. They're going to hear the gospel. They're going to respond to the gospel. They are mine. And I can imagine the same thing happening with Jonah. Jonah, go on to Nineveh. I've got some people there. I know the city's wicked. I know Assyria's wicked and and you're afraid. But go there. I've got some people there. They're going to hear your word and they're going to respond. It wasn't just a city for God, it was a large city for God. 
three days' journey in breadth. In verse 4, Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. First of all, I'm thinking, if I'm in Assyria, and somebody walks into Assyria, the capital city of Assyria, and says, in 40 days, Assyria is going down. I'm going to think this guy's joking. Because number one, nobody's bringing us down. Nobody's going to destroy us. We're taking the world over right now. No one can stand against our armies. No one can stand against our power. And this guy has the audacity to come in. Who is he? From where is he? We don't know. To tell us that in 40 days, Nineveh's going down and Assyria will be no more. Jonah walks down a third of its streets, a third of its marketplaces, and he's preaching this simple, direct, and clear message. And God, in spite of the fact that it doesn't seem to make sense logically to the Assyrians, I'm sure, or Jonah, I'm sure, God took hold of Jonah, and God took hold of his message, and God took hold of the Ninevites, and they believed. The message was direct, simple, and clear. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. In my Bible, NASB, it's eight words. Eight words. Some of you are thinking, I wish you'd preach an eight-word sermon. Be at the buffet right now. In Hebrew, it's only five words. Five Hebrew words. So you got Jonah, whose heart likely still was not in this work. He probably wasn't preaching this with a smile on his face, or at least in his heart. He could have just said these five words in Hebrew, and maybe he did. And God could have used those five words to bring awakening to Nineveh. Now, I don't know about you, but that's encouraging, that God can take five Hebrew words and bring awakening to a city. You've got Paul in the New Testament who's often described as not an eloquent speaker who speaks in weakness and yet through whom God shows great strength. When you think five words can bring a city to repentance, that means that five words you say to someone else could make a lasting impact that you are never even aware of. Five little seeds of the gospel, five little words, five little truths. God can take our little sentences, our little comments, our little phrases, our little words, and His Holy Spirit can take those as meager as they are and He can use them to transform lives. Maybe these five words were just a summary. Maybe they were the title of His sermon. And His sermon was a lot longer. Maybe, maybe He set the stage for His sermon and said, let me tell you a little story about a man who ran from God a while back. And this storm came. And some sailors on the ship believed before it was over, and they were praying to my God, but they threw me into the ocean because I was disobedient to God, and I brought this calamity on them. And then I thought I was at the last moment. My spirit was curling up within me. My soul was curling up within me. And I was about to, I was about to see my last, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a big fish swam through and got me. And then I thought, surely I'm dead. But then I wasn't dead, and I prayed for three days, 
and I prayed for three nights, and then that fish threw me up all in order to come here. Maybe Jonah intertwined his testimony with his five-word sermon. It seems that Jesus kind of implies that in Luke chapter 11 and verse 30. It says, just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, and His resurrection were a very clear sign to His generation that God cared about their soul. Jonah and the length that God went through to catch him and bring him back to the Ninevites was a sign to them that God cared about their souls. Whatever the case, Jonah... And Jonah's words put the fear of God in them. In verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Literally, the Hebrew is the people of Nineveh believed God. There's a danger in the way we do church. The danger is that I'm up here on this platform or whoever's preaching is up here on this platform. and got them a big podium up here and they kind of talk down at everybody and you know before you know it every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday the people who can't stand the guy kind of trickle out and then people that really like the guy and the way he preaches trickle in and before you know it you got a whole group of people if you hang around long enough you got a whole group of people that really want to listen to you and they want to hear what you have to say and the way you say it. And you know what happens when that happens? When people believe a preacher, it doesn't, the change that is affected doesn't usually last long. But when people believe God through the preacher, Something happens at last. And I think it's interesting that it wasn't like they believed Jonah. They believed God meant what Jonah said he said. These people of Nineveh believed that God meant what Jonah said he said. They weren't believing Jonah. They were believing God. And the whole city was changed. Verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. This is absolutely unbelievable that from the king on the throne to the beast in the field, Nineveh was filled with a spirit of repentance and they were pleading with God that he would be merciful to them. 
On what grounds, you wicked Ninevites? On what ground, you violent Assyrians? On what ground, you Gentile pagans, do you have the audacity to call upon God and think He's going to have mercy upon you? Well, I know that if this man's words are true, that this God went through some great lengths to get this message to us. This God went all the way down to Israel and He called out a son of the prophets, a man who could hear the voice of God and He brought him to us. And when that man tried not to come, He sent a ship. He sent a storm. He sent a fish. And then He sent him again. If He went through this much trouble, is it possible that maybe He'll forgive? And in verse number 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Now remember what we're doing here. We're not talking about Jonah. We're not talking about focusing on a great fish. We're focusing on a great God. And we have seen some things about God in Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 2. What have we learned about God? We've learned that God is omnipresent. That means He's everywhere all the time, all of Him. We've learned that God is omnipotent. That means that God can do all His holy will. There's nothing He wills to do that He cannot do. He's the creator and sustainer. He created the universe in six literal days. He created you in your mother's womb. He sustains you to this moment. All He has to do is just stop providing you breath, stop providing you a heartbeat, and you'll check out of here just like that. He's righteous and just. He's sovereign and He's saving. Those are the things we've seen so far. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Creator, righteous and just, sovereign and saving. Now what do we learn about today? We learn in verse number 1 of Jonah chapter 3 that God is patient. God is patient. The word of the Lord came to Jonah The second time. I mean, if I'm God, if I'm God and I tell Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah says, no, I'm going to run to Tarshish, I'm sending the storm, I'm throwing him into the sea, and the whale's going to swallow him, and that's going to be it for him, and I'm going to another guy over here. You want to run from me? You're done for, buddy. But God didn't do that. Because God's more patient than I am. Aren't you glad God's more patient than I am? You know, we think about patience as an attribute of God. And it doesn't sound as impressive as His omnipotence, does it? Patience are all-powerful, able to do everything you will. Patience doesn't sound as awe-inspiring as His omnipresence, that He's everywhere all the time, all of Him. Can you wrap your mind around that? Patience doesn't sound as awesome as His sovereignty, that He is in control and there's not one iota of one molecule that steps outside of His absolute providential care and control. Patience as an attribute of God doesn't sound quite as amazing or mind-boggling until we all just stop for a minute and look in the mirror. 
And let's not just look in the mirror, but let's look back over the course of our day, over the course of our week, over the course of our life. And then God's patience as an attribute is pretty awesome, isn't it? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Listen, for a just and holy God could have taken you the very first time you sinned willfully and just snuffed you out and sent you to hell and been absolutely, perfectly just in what He did. Because the wages of sin is death. You sin one time, you should be snuffed out and sent to hell. That's biblical. If not, for God's patience with us. Not wishing for you to perish, but for you to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Christ, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Here's Paul. He's been persecuting Christians, imprisoning Christians, killing Christians, fighting against Christianity. And he says, God just raised me up so that he could demonstrate not just his patience, but what? His perfect patience. He's not just patient. He's perfectly patient. And he is perfectly patient, not so that you can do your thing and bank on a deathbed confession. Don't take his perfect patience for granted thinking you have tomorrow, thinking you have next week, thinking you have next month. Romans 2, 4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? If you are alive and breathing this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you ought to be amazed at the fact that he is patient enough with you to let you live to this day, and not only allow you to live to this day, but allow you to come into this place and hear the gospel message sung and prayed and preached one more time. That's a patient God we have. Because some of you have heard it every Sunday for how many years of your life? And He still just keeps on putting up with you. Another Sunday, when you know deep down, every Sunday He's, he's convicting you and He's saying, You don't really know. You've not really been transformed by my power. You may have walked the aisle. You may have prayed the sinner's prayer. You may have went through the baptistry. You may have joined the church. You may try to be a good person. You may be whatever you want to fill in the blank with, but you know deep down you're not right with me and you don't know me and you've not been transformed by me. And here you are again to hear it all one more time. Patience. Patience. God is not only patient, but he's personal. We also see that in verse number 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Remember we said they believed, literally they believed God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Listen, God had a message for them. This wasn't just Jonah coming in and speaking. This was God speaking a message specially crafted for them through this guy Jonah. He didn't pull out an old, okay, i got to go to Nineveh. Let me go to my file and see what kind of good sermon I've got. Let me see what kind of sermon people have responded well to. 
And God said, you go to Nineveh, and I'm going to tell you what to say to them when you get there. And Jonah goes, and God speaks a personal message to, of all people, the Ninevites. Now, I could see God speaking a special message to the Israelites. I could see God speaking a special message to the inhabitants of Judah at the temple. But the Ninevites? God has a personal message for them, and He gets it to them through Jonah. And man, if God would just get a personal message to you, you're thinking, if He would just give me a personal message this morning, then I would hear Him. I would believe. But all I get is this guy up here ranting. He's just blanketing it to everybody. You know, let me, let me give you the links God has gone to to get you a personal message. Number one, creation. Creation reveals God. Psalm 19, 1 and 2, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The reason you can see creation out there is because God is speaking to you through creation that there is a Creator. Now, I know we want to argue against that and push back against it and say, well, there's evolution. And the reason we think of evolution is because we don't like God. We've got to have another alternative. It's not because it's logical. It's not because it's scientific. It's not because it's proven. It's not because of any of that. It's just we don't like God. Let's be honest. So we don't like God, so we make up something to replace God. The universe. The universe created itself out of nothing. Long, 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 long time ago. Just from the ooh to the goo, to the zoo, to me and you, and here we are. And that's just the way it happened. You really think that. You really think that? You've just bought a line by some professor who gets paid to tell you this stuff. Because you, I mean, you wouldn't go and look at a, a, a high-rise tower and somebody say, yeah, a tornado blew through the junkyard and put that thing together and I work in there now. You're going to think, you're, you're crazy. Oh, but I mean, just something, nothing, made all this. You know better than that. And the reason God has given us creation is to testify that there is a creator to anybody who will be honest with themselves and with God. The problem is, Romans chapter 1 tells us people aren't going to do that. Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Let me tell you something. Creation is enough to damn you. It's not enough to save you. It's enough to show you God and cause you to say, well, I don't like that God. And, and, and can I just have a second? This is like free. This is free, so just bear with me a second. What's, what's funny is that the people who don't like God and they come up with evolution, they come up with this story that really just creation created itself. So ultimately, if it had no beginning... And it created itself, in a sense, creation's God. The universe is God. And it's so comical because they don't realize they're proving the Bible to be true. Because you know what God says after Romans 1? Instead of worshiping the Creator, they exchange the Creator for creation. We don't like this God. We're going to worship the moon, the sun. The stars or our universe that created us all somehow. God has given us creation to reveal Himself to us. There is a Creator. And then He went a step further and He's given us Scripture 
to reveal himself to us. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is just one snapshot, and this is a whole lot of stuff in those verses about God, and that is the purpose of the Bible. Well, you know, the Bible's just... Yeah, the Bible is just still around. Well, there's contradictions in the Bible. Name some. Do you think people haven't tackled those? The Bible is still around, and the Bible's still around because it was written over a period of 1,400 plus years by over 40 different holy men, human authors, on three separate continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, and three separate languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And yet, despite all of that diversity, it tells one story of how a patient God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for your sin and to bring you peace with God. That's why it's still around. And He's given us this book. He's given us creation. He's given us Scripture. And thirdly, And most importantly, he's given us Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, I had a whole lot of verses on here, but I won't do that to you. We'll just look at verses 1 through 3. Listen to what it says. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So God has spoken to the fathers through the prophets, through the writers of Scripture. And today, when Hebrews is written, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory. And the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's what the Bible is telling us. God has given us creation. God has given us His scriptures. And God has given us Himself. He came to this earth, the Son coming forth from the Father. Just like your reflection in the mirror comes forth from you, Jesus came forth from the Father. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like a man, but if he were to pass in front of a mirror, the reflection he would cast would be Jesus Christ because he is the radiance and the exact image and representation of the Father. You want to know God? We can learn about him from Jonah, but if you want to know God, you got to know Jesus. He's given us Christ. Lastly, God is patient. God is personal, and he's giving you a personal message this morning, but God is immutable. God is immutable. And you're like, huh, I hope, maybe. You may be like, what are you talking about? God is immutable. Well, in verse number 10, look at what it says in verse number 10 of Jonah chapter 3. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. 
Now, what does the word immutability mean? Hang on to verse 10. Immutability means that God is unchanging. And not only is God unchanging, but don't miss this, He is unchangeable. We can sit down here. You know, your kid can catch you at the grocery store aisle, and they can act a total fool. You ever had that happen? Somebody who deserves much punishment put this stuff at the aisle where you check out because they know your kid's going to act crazy at the aisle, at the checkout. And, I mean, your kid can flop and act a fool and half a Kroger would look at you and you're just like, just get the Twix and let's get out of here, right? We can act a fool all we want. We can kick, scream, and throw a fit, and God's like, unchangeable. Mr. Steady. He doesn't change. He can't be changed. That's what it means to be immutable. James 1.17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. This is how little God changes. He don't even cast a shadow. His shadow doesn't move. He is what he is, and if you don't like what you find here, that's all you got. Now, immutability sounds like it's not that important, but listen, immutability is absolutely important. And here's why. Listen to this quote by a dead guy, Stephen Sharnock, who wrote Existence and Attributes of God. This is why immutability is so important. Immutability is a glory belonging to all the attributes of God. Omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, sovereignty, justice and righteousness, creation, creator, patient, personal. This, this, glory, this is a glory belonging to all the attributes of God. It is not a single perfection of the divine nature. Immutability is the center wherein they all unite. How cloudy would His blessedness be if it were changeable? How dim his wisdom if it might be obscured. How feeble his power if it were capable to be sickly and languish. How would mercy lose much of its luster if it could change into wrath and justice much of its area if it could be turned into mercy. Unchangeableness is a thread that runs through the whole web. So this, this attribute of immutability doesn't just affect here's one part of God over here that's separate from all the rest. Oh, no, no, no. It affects them all. Listen, not only does God not change, but nothing about God changes. And then we read verse 10, and we find out that something seems to change. That God saw their deeds. Oh, I see what these Ninevites are doing now. Oh, um, uh, they've turned from their wicked way, guys. I think I'll relent concerning what I went through, all this trouble to get Jonah to go tell them. Some of your Bibles may say that he actually repented or changed his mind. Now, wait a minute. If I know God's immutable, I thought God was immutable. Did God not know that Nineveh was going to repent? And if he did know that they were going to repent, why on earth did he say they were, he was going to destroy them in 40 days? And if he didn't know they were going to repent then he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, past, present, future, and all the possibilities. And he had to adjust. He had to adjust to events that caught him off guard. And if God adjusted, he changed. And if he changed, he isn't immutable. And if he isn't immutable, we are in big trouble. Because he can be holy today, and tomorrow he can be sinful. 
Could you imagine God if he just was like the devil and became sinful? It's a terrifying world, is it not? He could be loved today, 1 John 4, 8, and tomorrow there's a possibility he could be hatred. He can be forgiving and merciful today and tomorrow relent and decide he's going to hold a grudge and become malicious. He could be gracious and saving today and tomorrow he could repent and give us all just exactly what we deserve. We'll all wake up in the morning in our beds wondering which side of his bed God got up on if he's not immutable. So how do we explain this? You go to people smarter than you, right? So we go back to Sharnock. Listen carefully. He helps us. He says, where we find predictions in Scripture declared, like 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Where we find predictions in Scripture declared and yet not executed, like verse 10, God relented and did not destroy them. We must consider them not as absolute but conditional. God declared what would follow by natural causes or by the demerit of man, not what he would absolutely himself do. It's kind of like the father who said, if you do that one more time, and means it. He means it. But if the kid changes his attitude and doesn't do that one more time, the father doesn't whip him. Does that mean the father's changed? No, the little varmint's changed, right? So the promises of God are to be understood with the condition of perseverance and well-doing. You going to claim the promises of God while you live like the devil? No. And threatenings should be understood with a clause of revocation or, I'll take them back, provided that men repent. It's not he that changes, but man. God sent this warning through Jonah. And when the threat was made... The people of Nineveh were a fit object of justice and wrath, and God meant every word of it. But when Nineveh repented, they were a fit object for mercy and grace, and God meant every bit of it. To threaten when sins are high is a part of God's justice. Not to execute when sins are revoked by repentance is a part of God's goodness. And I like this one right before lunch. Is the sun changing when it hardens one thing and softens another? Or when the sun makes a flower more fragrant and a dead carcass more noisome? The reason of that diversity is not in the sun, but in the subject. So when we read things in the Bible, well, God changed His mind. God repented. God messed up. No, that's not what we need to see. We don't need to see that God messed up, didn't see something coming, and had to change his mind. We need to see that God is ever stable, immutable, unchanging, but the subject changed. And therefore, God's relation to that subject changed. When you are walking to this place this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, if you were to die right now, you'd go straight to hell. Nothing in God's got to change for that to happen. But if you hear the truth of the gospel message, and you fall on your face, and you repent of your sin, and you put your faith and your trust in Him, you can die, and you can go to heaven. And nothing in God's changed. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
The psalmist said in Psalm 102, 26 and 27, Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your, ear, your years will not come to an end. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God doesn't change. And listen, the same God that sent Jonah through all of that to get the word to Nineveh, sent his son through all of this to get the word to you. He took on flesh, born of a virgin, and lived a sinless, spotless, perfect life, the life God requires and demands of you. See, God doesn't just demand you to be a little better than the deacons or a little better than the person you live next to or a little better than that guy who claims to be a Christian. God demands that you be perfect, sinless, spotless, never failing, never stepping outside of His will for one iota of a second. And none of us have done that because we've all sinned and come short of God's glorious standard, right? But Jesus, He did it. He checked every box necessary for you to check to get to heaven. He put your name at the top of the paper and checked the boxes for you. And then He took your punishment the sentence of death, hell, and the grave for you. And he went to the cross, and on the cross, God the Father judged your sin in Jesus on the cross until Jesus could say with authority, it is finished. Give up his spirit, buried in a bar tomb. On Sunday morning, he rose from the grave, which proves that the Father accepted his sacrifice. He is pleased with his sacrifice. And what that means for you this morning is that no matter how far you have run from, from God and no matter how many times you have rejected his message and no matter how many times you have rebelled against him this morning if you will repent of your sin and turn away from your old affections and your old attitudes and your old actions and you will throw yourself upon the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ he will save you he will redeem you he will give you peace with God and he won't have to change to do it. In fact, he'll have to be exactly the same. Would you bow with me? Father God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love, your gospel message, your good news of Jesus Christ. And the fact that you, a patient, personal God, don't change, but you remain the same. I pray, God, that you would speak to hearts even now. Help us to worship you for who you are and your attributes. And God, if there's a person here who doesn't know you, they've been riding on your perfect patience, I pray, God, that you would convict them, that you would grant them repentance, that you would grant them faith and in your sovereignty, that you would awaken them and bring them to yourself, that they may repent of their sin even today, even now, turn from their sin, and put their faith in you and call upon your name. God, help us to hear your still, small voice and to respond as you see fit for us to respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.